Just before we begin, I wanted to let you know that this podcast contains some descriptions of physical and psychological violence. Please use discretion. Since 2015, when I arrived in Europe, I have grown more attached to the sun. I always think of the winter sun where I am in Europe as a guest of honor in the sky. It appears only in short cameos throughout the weeks, and when it does, you don't get the full feeling of it. A friend of mine once called it the fridge bulb because she felt that the sun was only there to light the cold days, but it doesn't really keep you warm. In Syria, where I'm from, I remember winters being sunny and warm. I miss them. It's not only the sun itself that is different in Europe. The difference is also in how other things feel. Intangible things, like air. I don't know how to explain it, but in Syria, air smelled like Assad, my country's ruler. In every breath I took, his presence was powerful in my chest. In the back of my mind, I imagined him counting the number of oxygen atoms I breathe, and only allowing me what's necessary to stay alive. The rest of the oxygen was his. He kept it to remind me of how much he owns everything in Syria. But in Europe, all the oxygen in the air is mine. You can say air is air and the sun is the same everywhere, but they are not, at least not to me. As a Syrian refugee, safety was the reason why my family had to leave Syria in 2015. Before that, my father was arrested and detained twice because the Assad regime saw his peaceful activism as an existential threat. But now I hear people saying that Syria is safe, that the war is over, that the Assad regime has, quote, substantially improved safety in the capital Damascus. These aren't my words. It's the Danish government's description. The same government in clear violation of human rights conventions and wants to send back hundreds of Syrian refugees from Damascus to meet their unknown fate there. Syria is safe, they say. Maybe they don't fully realize what has been and is still happening in Syria. They don't know about the real and ongoing horrors that more than 100,000 detainees continue to face in detention in Syria. Just because they dared to express their opinions or criticize the authorities from torture to enforce disappearance and killings. The story I'm going to tell you in this podcast is not just about these atrocities. It is a story of love, friendship, and surviving against the odds. To fight for all those left behind. But right now, what I think about most is that misconception about the meaning of safety in Syria. Is Syria safe? Of course no, Syrians couldn't go back to their country. From message heard in the Syria campaign, this is Behind the Sun. I'm Nadia Bukai. The voice you heard earlier is Riyadh. He doesn't speak English well, in his opinion, but he wanted to speak in English for you because he believes that it's best for him to try doing his own translation. My name is Riyadh, Riyadh Aulaj. In fact, it is in Turkish like this, Aulaj. As he just said, Riyadh is Turkish. 
I met him for the first time under very strange circumstances. The first time we were in touch, I was 13 years old and he was in prison. He was my father's cellmate and I was trying to connect him with his family in Turkey. He had been in detention in Syria for 18 years at that point, and he didn't call them once. Of course, not because he didn't want to, but because he was denied this very basic right. In his first six and a half years of detention, he was forcibly disappeared and his family had no idea where he was or if he was dead or alive. Riyadh had such an unusual and extremely difficult journey, and I would like you to hear his story. You were a child in this time, I know, and I couldn't believe myself. There is a child who helped me. When I met Riyadh over the phone, he didn't have any family members living in Syria. He was in prison, as I said earlier, and there, if you were lucky enough to get a chance to call someone, you can't make international or internet calls. So the arrangement that happened in 2014 was that Riyadh would call me on my phone and I would call his family and then connect their calls. You changed uh, my life. You give me hope. You give me smiles. Uh, uh, and how I say thank you and thank you and thank you, I know it will not be enough for you, Nadia. You have to know this, my girl. Uh, I did what I had to do. <laughs> you and your family, your father too. You know that my mother, for the first time, after 17 years, she saw my face through your father's pictures when he dived my face. Uh, and uh, I couldn't, or I will not, not just I couldn't, I will not uh, forget all my life that one family came and changed my life. My father is also an artist and he drew Riyadh's face so that his mother could see what he looks like after all those years. One of the reasons why Riyadh is the right candidate to help me explain the meaning of safety in Syria is because Riyadh is a survivor of enforced disappearance in my country. After he was kidnapped by the Syrian regime in the 90s, he was held in secret detention for 21 years, completely cut off from the outside world and his loved ones. He was held behind the sun. In Syria and other countries in the Middle East, Behind the sun is a term that strikes fear in the hearts and minds of many. People say it when they speak about someone who has disappeared, usually under suspicious or forced circumstances, or to avoid explicitly mentioning the notorious intelligence services known as Mukhabarat, or its officers. If you do something like that, you will probably end up behind the sun yourself. And the regime henchmen say this phrase to emphasize their ability to hide people without a trace. Behind the sun is dark, cold, cruel, and far from safety. People die behind the sun. When Riyadh finally escaped this abyss, he vowed to shed some lights on these dark places. He co-founded ADMSP right after he was freed from Syria in 2017. 
ADMSP stands for the Association of Detainees and Missing Persons in Sidnaya Prison. Riyadh's Behind the Sun location was Sidnaya Military Prison. Not many outside of Syria know of it. When we're talking about the Sydney prison, I know uh, when we say the prisons, many uh, people uh, thinking that the prison is uh, like Democrats' countries' prisons, but it isn't like this. In fact, Sydney is not a prison at all. It is not a normal detention center where you have rights, get visits, or get a lawyer. You may not get sufficient daily food rations or see the sun and breathe fresh air regularly. Not at all. These things do not exist there. In fact, if you googled Sidnaya now, you would find it widely known as the Human Slaughterhouse. That's how Amnesty International called it, and that's how all the Syrians know it. The best description of it is a death camp. The Syrian regime detains people and sends them to their deaths in Sidnaya. Just death. There is no other destiny except for a very few people, and those are the very fortunate ones who would survive this place. This is Diab. He is a Syrian activist, Riyadh's best friend, a former cellmate in Sidnaya and one of the founders of ADMSP. He doesn't speak English, that's why you will hear an English voice over his words. Before Sidnaya turned into the synonym of torture and killing like it is now, It was just another addition to Assad's father, Hafez, collection of prisons. It was opened in 1987 as a military detention camp. To get as many detainees as possible, it was built on a very wide stretch of land, more than 1 million square meters or around 350 acres. And when it comes to making people disappear, Hafez al-Assad needed privacy. So it was built on a tall hill surrounded by wide empty land, hidden away more than 30 kilometers northeast of the center of the capital. When they opened it, among the first prisoners were communists, Muslim Brotherhood members, and Palestinian detainees from Yasser Arafat's Fatah faction. Most of the other detainees were people who opposed the regime politically or anybody who had a different opinion to those of the state or the regime. In the past, there were human rights violations. Anybody who vocally opposed the government would be sent to prison and tortured. But since 2011, the situation is no longer just human rights violations. It has become crimes against humanity. It has become war crimes. It is different. It became systematic. Human rights violations became systematic. Torture became systematic. And at a mass scale. In Syria now, it's not a single individual incident here and there, or limited to some presence. No, no. Now, at every detention center in Syria, you are exposed to torture and exposed to forcible disappearance. So, this is what has changed. Whereas before there used to be human rights violations, now the situation is a mass crime against humanity. Now as the world's attention appears to be fading, countries seem to be normalizing relations with Assad. And what might that mean for him? An escape from justice. According to the Syrian Network for Human Rights, 
Nearly 128,000 have never emerged and are presumed to be either dead or still in custody in Syria. Since March 2011, over 14,000 were killed under torture. Many prisoners die from conditions so dire that a United Nations investigation labeled the process extermination. The pace of new arrests, torture and execution is increasing, Diab says. After 10 years of revolution or war or whatever you want to call it, I mean, there is no safety. There are still the security forces and intelligence branches. There are prisons and detention centers. There is forcible disappearance. So, of course, it's not safe for anybody to live there or for anybody who escaped Syria because of the war or the security forces or intelligence branches to return to Syria. Because until now, nothing has changed. The policy of detention and forcible disappearance is still continuing. If I asked anyone in the world, what do you think an Air Force intelligence service does? They might say something about monitoring airspace or countering threats related to Air Force or air defense systems. But just like how the meaning of safety in Syria doesn't match what it represents outside, so does Air Force intelligence or Air Force Muhabarat, aka Al-Jawiya. They are the all-watching eyes and the all-hearing ears of the regime that monitor whatever happens in Syria. That's what most Syrians would say if you ask them about al-Mukhabarat al-Jawiya. When Bashar's father, Hafiz Assad, the one you heard speaking to crowds, took control of the country in a coup in 1970, he did it using al-Jawiya, his own intelligence service the one he created while commanding the Air Force in the 60s. To solidify his rule, Hafez al-Assad created a minority elite. The top leadership are drawn largely from his extended family and the Alawite community. During the insurgency that rocked the regime and was led by the Muslim Brotherhood between 1978 and 1982, the role and power of his intelligence agencies expanded dramatically. During this period, they gained increased resources and personnel and demonstrated brutal ruthlessness to cow any potential opponent. Drafat Assad at that time, he was a, an officer and he went uh, to these detention centers and killed in moments hundreds of prisoners for nothing. Rifat al-Assad is Hafez's brother, in case you didn't recognize the name. He commanded a feared military group at that time called the Defense Companies. To understand the context of what is happening now in Sidnaya in Syria and how the intelligence is running the country, we must go back to the times when things change. Four years before Bashar Assad, the current leader of Syria, became president. In 1996, Riyadh, then a 19-year-old student in Syria, was abducted while he was in public transit. The Mukhabarat arrested him after he had sent a letter telling his friends about the stories he heard. 
about the Tadmer prison massacre in 1980 and Rafat al-Assad, the president's brother, was involved in it. I wrote and I tried to send this letter to my friend in Turkey to tell them what reality this is. But the Syrian intelligence search and find everything. <laughs> I was a young boy uh, and these actions uh, took 21 years from my life for nothing. From the moment of his arrest, Riyadh disappeared. Nobody knew where he went. His family and friends didn't know if he was dead or alive. At that time, the Syrian and the Turkish governments were in a cold war, and Damascus was harboring the Kurdish leader, Abdullah Öcalan, one of the founders of the Kurdish Workers' Party militia, PKK. That was an integral part of the Kurdish-Turkish conflict. When they captured me, uh, of course, they showed me these letters, and they said, okay, you see, you wrote something against us. I said, okay, I wrote, but it is just a childish things. <laughs> they made him sign and stamp his fingerprints on a confessional letter in Arabic, a language Riyadh wasn't completely fluent in at that time. In the letter, he was falsely accused of spying on Syria and committing acts of espionage to destabilize the country. Remember, he was just 19 at that time. After 15 years, I learned they uh, accused me. I don't know what they called in English, but to make matters or problems between two countries. They mean Turkey, Turkey and Syria. And to brought armies uh, against the Syria. Oh, what I am, a superman. <laughs> It's no surprise that Riyadh finds it laughable that the regime thought a young man like him was responsible for such elaborate plots against the state. Perhaps his laughter is an attempt to protect himself from these dark memories. But the Mukhabarat doesn't kid around. When he was detained, Riyadh was with his wife. And after his arrest, he thought that they released her because she didn't do anything. But that wasn't the case. After one year in the intelligence branches, an officer came to him and told him that his wife was in their custody and they wanted him to talk to her. It was a real shock. I frozen. I said, she's here? He said, yes. I said, why? What she did? Why you are captured here till now? He said, I don't know. I'm just an officer. Because just she was my wife. This is the reason. There was no reason, no reason at all. She didn't do anything. Riyadh's wife became tired of her situation. They were married young, and they were certainly much too young for this. And when Mukhabarat men asked him to see her, she was 14 days into a hunger strike. They wanted him to convince her to end it. I said, okay, where is her? He said, in the car and you have to talk with her to eat or she is going to die and nobody will hear about her. Nobody will hear about you. I went to car and I saw her. She was there in the car and uh, I try to be strong 
in front of her. But inside me, I was crying. I took her on my hands. She was very, uh, very weak because 14 days, she wasn't eat anything. I took her and I began talking with her. I asked her, why did you do that? Why did you uh, do that? She said, because I want to die. I said, why? She said, because they are cruel. We didn't do anything. Why they to, took us here? For what? I said, I don't know. But I know one thing, just one thing. We have to, we have to fighting to go out from this hell. And I promise you, I will do everything to take you outside from this place. It was a very bad moment in my life. Yeah. And of course, after that, she ate. They didn't release her after what had happened, but Riyadh did see her again. After uh, two years, they took me to a political section in another prison. They brought all the political women to that place, and she was uh, one of them. And we began to wrote to each other <laughs> letters uh, and throw this letter to each other from the windows. Uh, yeah, every day we wrote something about love, about uh, our life. Moments like these are what keep people from falling apart. Not many were this lucky, but this certainly helped Riyad and his wife for a while. After six years and six months from their detention and disappearance, Riyal and his wife met again and saw a courtroom for the first time, the state security court. There wasn't any court, in fact. The judge said, we sentence you to die. So I said, what I did to die? And he, he stopped there. <laughs> And after a while, he began to reading again, and he said, okay, we sentence you again to forever. I said, forever what? What do you mean? He said, you will stay in the detention center forever. All my life, yes. I said, what I did? He said, shut up, man, go out. If you wonder how an official judge could be so flippant during sentencing, I'll explain a bit later. But for now, you should remember the judge's name, Faiz Nuri. Faiz Nuri also sentenced Riyadh's wife to six and a half years, which is the exact same period she had already spent in detention. That said, she had already served her time and was free to go. She refused to go out. She said, I want to go out without Riyadh. I want him. And she began to scream and she began to cry, crying, crying. And afterwards, they accept to, to let her to come and see me just for half hour. And 
I try to to make her calm. I said, okay, go. And when you go, you will working for me outside. You will told my family, you will told my friends, my friends to come and help me. Go, please. Ah, uh, yes. And at that moment, I believed that I will not see her again. I know she will go and I will not see her again at all. Yeah. For two years after her release, Riyadh's wife tried to work on getting him freed. She told everyone about him, about where they were, and about the alleged accusations. That was when his family first knew that he was alive. But nothing happened, the Mukhabarat stayed as it is, and Riyadh stayed where he was. Riyadh never saw her again. He learned after his release, 15 years after the trial, that she got married again and had children. Riyadh has not married again. Between Riyadh's enforced disappearance and his trial, something happened in 2000. Hafez al-Assad died and his son Bashar inherited the presidency without fair elections. A few months after Riyadh's secret trial, Diab, a young Syrian, started engaging in online activism. He was a prominent member in an online forum, something like Reddit. It was called Akhawiya, which means fraternity in English. In this forum, Diab and his friends spoke freely about politics and other things. In 2003, the internet in Syria was relatively new, so people didn't know what level of censorship to expect. And they also believed the rhetoric young Assad was spreading at that time that he's modernizing Syria and moving away from his father's role towards a more open and democratic Syria. But his muhabarat, the same intelligence services he proudly inherited from his father, grew tired of the forum. And they certainly wouldn't tolerate what happened when the forum participants took online political discourse to the streets in 2005. <laughs> We tried to establish a congregation of young people. And we wrote a paper with our demands of the state. Basically, what we were saying on the internet, we put it on paper. And some young people adopted this manifesto. And we established an association we called Youth for Syria, Shams. Shams means the sun, by the way. They were members of the Sun movement calling for freedom and justice for Syrians. Of course, the regime was growing tired of political activity in general, not just Shams, and started detaining well-known political dissidents. The intelligence began to follow Shams members, and they succeeded in detaining one of the movement's leaders. When Diab heard, he fled from his home in Damascus. The thing is, if the Mukhabarat can't get to you, they will try to get to your family. The Mukhabarat arrested Diab's father and demanded that he should turn himself in by meeting them in the street. I arrived at the meeting place. After that, I found my dad with them in a car. I entered the car from the back door. 
there was a clearly high-ranking officer in the car. He was telling my dad not to fear, there is just a simple procedure, just a brief Q&A. We are just keeping him for a little bit, maybe just taking him for as long as takes to drink a cup of coffee. We'll send him right back to you after. There is nothing to worry about. We will return him to you. Of course, my dad clearly did not believe it. The intelligence officers didn't care about Diab's father, so they stopped playing nice. At the end, they got rid of my dad in a very humiliating way. When he refused to leave, they forced him out of the car. He kept looking at me, and his eyes began tearing up at that moment. I felt like he was leaving a piece of his heart in the car. He was leaving his son. He kept looking at the car as it was moving away, like a piece of his heart was going away with it. They blindfolded Diab and moved him to an intelligence branch where he would be detained and interrogated for a while. And just like the case in every Mohabarat branch until now, they took him underground and started torturing him for 30 minutes. And then came an interrogator. The interrogation was a mix of torture and lectures. The president is bringing technology to this country. He is the president of the Syrian Information and Technology Association. And he brought computers to this country, the interrogator was telling me. This computer you see before you, we never would have dreamed of having it were it not for Mr. President. The president brought these computers, and you are using it for this? Alongside the baton and the web and your other torture tools? Is this your modernization? To have a computer and at the same time to have your web, your baton, your tools to torture people with? The interrogation period took around 45 days. During this time, he didn't gain anything from staying silent or refusing to say what they wanted to hear. In Syria's justice system, when the intelligence says something about you, you must admit it and everyone else should agree as well. As soon as you admit everything they want you to admit, that's the end. They stop the torture and send you to court. And we have to put court between quotation marks here. Do you remember Faiz and Nouri, the judge who sentenced Riyal and his wife? In 2007, Diab stood in the same courtroom with the same judge. Faiz and Nouri perfectly encapsulated the notion of justice in Assad Syria. This judge had been heading the state security court since the 1980s. In the 90s, there was a failed assassination attempt that left him deaf and visually impaired. And this is the man presiding over your case. This man will judge you. In the trial, the judge is just a messenger that reads your sentence. And this particular messenger was a bad one. This man read my name, but then read the name of my friend's father instead of mine. 
and read the name of another friend's mother instead of mine, and read the birth date of yet another person. I didn't understand the accusation when he pronounced them. I literally couldn't follow his words, because he does not speak well. All I could understand was that we were sentenced and that we were being sent back. The regime also denied Yab any legal assistance from human rights NGOs. And at that time, there weren't any lawyers who would voluntarily take Diab's case. Even now, it will be very dangerous for a lawyer to defend a political prisoner or someone accused of treason against the state. It can cost them their own freedom. So the court appointed the defense. But because each one of the lawyers feared continuing with Diab, in his five court appearances, Diab had five different attorneys. When he was sentenced to five years in prison, Diab tried to tell the judge that he was coerced and tortured by the intelligence to confess. The judge replied, You are a liar. The intelligence doesn't do anything like that. If you were starved, how are you still alive? So, the so-called judge was worse than the intelligence agents. He wouldn't beat you, but the only thing he would do is curse and insult you. Imagine, the judge is just telling you, shut up, shut up, and disparaging you all the time with his way of talking, saying things like, you are traitors. The judge would give you the feeling that you should feel lucky that he's not sentencing you to death. I want to pause here for a moment. At that time, in 2007, Sednaya still functioned like the old version. A notorious prison run by the military with a bad record of human rights violations. That would soon change. After his trial, Diab was heading towards the infamous Sednaya. One of the traditions that are common with all Assad detentions until now is a torture event known as welcome parties. In the intelligence branches, for example, you keep getting beaten and tortured until you confess what they want you to confess. When I confessed, fine, I am a traitor. The beating stopped. But in Sednaya, you are being beaten for nothing. They are beating you to break you from inside, psychologically and spiritually, to snatch your humanity away from you, to transform you into an animal. And then, like a sheep, you enter your barn, namely solitary confinement. You keep being beaten, and sometimes they bring you some food. And you could die at any moment. So Diab decided to avoid giving any reason for the guards to torture him. He accepted his fate and tried to cope with his situation. At that time in Sidnaya, inmates were allowed to read books and newspapers. But these publications had to go through Mukhabarat first for approval, which means it was just part of the state propaganda. At the end of the day, 
as I didn't want dissidents to be able to think freely or have access to knowledge in Svetnaya. Their free thinking is what got them inside in the first place. By contrast for Diab, books were the things that kept him sane. And whenever there was an opportunity to get his hands on a banned book, he would grab it immediately. After some time in Sidnaya, Diab would meet someone who would change his life forever. We knew that there would be newcomers, so we all wanted to see who they were. If there was somebody who fit my personality, somebody without problems, not radically religious, or had any other personal problems, so we would have suitable company in ourselves. So I met someone and helped him carry his bag. And I immediately asked him, what do you have in your bag? It's too heavy. That person was Riyadh. Since his trial and separation from his wife in 2003, the authorities moved him between detention centers. And during that time, nobody from his family was able to locate where he was. His arrival to Sidnaya and meeting with Diab would also influence his life in a great way. I had at the time books from all the detainees. I uh, hide them, I keep them. When I, he saw me, I, I had many books with me. And as a cat smelling milk, he could smell the books uh, and... <laughs> And we be, <laughs> immediately became our friends. That is where it started. I began to borrow books from him. I was constantly asking him for suggestions since I wanted to read and we were not otherwise allowed to read anything other than what's authorized by the state. But with Riyadh, I found some nice books, short stories, novels. Anyway, the relationship began to strengthen from here. He told me, uh, he, uh, where are you from? I said, I am from Turkey. Wow, he said, Turkey? I said, yes, I am Turkey. He said, you are Turkish? Yes, I said, I'm Turkish, man. <laughs> it was a strange feeling. All but he said, oh, the Syrian intelligence not just captured the Syrians, they also captured the other nationality. <laughs> the bond between Riyadh and Diab grew stronger and stronger over the years. They were two like-minded men standing back-to-back against life in Sidnaya. They called their relationship something beyond brotherhood. We were eating together. Our beds were beside each other. It's to the point that you know everything about each other. For example, I used to cook a little bit and Riyadh would do the dishes. I knew, for instance, that Riyadh didn't like spicy or salty food, and he would drink his tea without sugar. So when I would cook for us, I would cook to his specifications. I wouldn't make the food spicy or salty. It became like an old married couple 
like a couple who'd been married for 40 years and know everything about each other. And each have their complaints about each other. But at the end of the day, they couldn't live without each other, nor would they ever divorce each other. Still, there was one thing that Riyadh couldn't get over. For years, Riyadh's family knew nothing about where he was or what happened to him. They only knew what his ex-wife told them when she got out. Uh, 15 years, my family searched about me and one of my family members went to Syria to ask about me um, three times. He went to a Syrian intelligence centers and they told him that I wasn't there. <laughs> but I, I, I was there and my brother was very near to me, maybe m- meters but they told, we don't uh, have this name. Diab didn't accept the situation for his best friend. He decided to write Riyadh's address on a delicate piece of paper he extracted from cigarette tinfoil and give it to his mother on the next visit. He folded and concealed the message under his little fingernail to avoid detection during the body cavity search. Diab had let the nail grow for more than a month before executing his plan. During a quick visit of about 30 seconds, he was allowed to hug his mother through a window. Diab kissed her hands, and while doing so, he passed the tiny paper into her grip and tightened his hands around her fingers. She didn't believe that there could be someone whose family knew nothing about him. And by the way, she just told me about this last year. She told me, when I read the paper, I wanted to get out the same night. I was thinking, how could there be a mother who has known nothing about her son for 14 years? How could I sleep knowing that there is a mother wandering about her son for 14 years? And truly, she left for Turkey in two days. After 15 years, for the first time, Diab's mothers came from Damascus to Turkey and she began to search about my family, my family's address, and she found my mother at the time. And for the first time, Diab's mother told my mother that I am alive and my family now, they can go and see me. Today, despite living in different countries, Riyadh and Diab are best friends and co-workers at ADMSP. Their dark ordeal with the Syrian intelligence created a strong bond that stood the test of time. Nowadays, my kids tell me that Riyadh is my brother. Riyadh is your brother, Baba. Baba, you have a brother. His name is Riyadh. And I tell them, yes, Riyadh is my brother, even though he's not my brother by blood. For educational reasons, I was trying to explain the difference between a brother and a friend, but even my kids loved him that much. And now, this is our lives. Riyadh and Diab are now replicating what they did for each other to help the families of other detainees locate their missing loved ones. Their organization, ADMSP, today plays a pivotal role in informing the families of the detainees about the fate of their children. They do their best to locate the people who remain missing in Assad's network of prisons, 
in so-called safe and stable Syria. But Riyal and Diab's story with Sidnaya hasn't ended yet. In the next five episodes of this podcast, we will explore the transformation of Sidnaya. We will understand how the regime has used Sidnaya to control the population and suppress the 2011 revolution. We will hear about the families searching for their loved ones. And we will hear from a witness in detail about what happened in Sidnaya. Next week on Behind the Sun, we go through the events that transformed Sidnaya from an ordinary prison to a human slaughterhouse. Behind the Sun is a co-production between Message Heard and the Syria Campaign, in collaboration with the Association of Detainees and the Missing, ADMSP, and the Syrian Center for Justice and Accountability, SJAC, under its project On the Margins No More. The series is written and produced by Mohammed Farouk. Thank you to Ranim, Ola, Sarah, Maiz and Rory from the Syria Campaign and Raha from ADMSP for helping put this series together. Additional thanks to Mahmoud Nawara for providing voiceover and translation. Editing, mixing and sound design was done by Yerik Zaba and Ivan Eastley. Additional production support from Molly Freeman, Tom Biddle and Lincoln van der Westhazen. Sandra Ferrari is the executive producer. The theme music is by Milo Evans. My name is Nigel Bukai.